As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! The limited but prescient narratives of old football comics, Brian Moore's effortless all-bases-covered commentary for a dog invading the pitch at Selhurst Park, the least showy footballing act that could count as showboating, the declining standard of parental assistant refereeing in youth football, proud but deluded Rothman's yearbook collectors, and the faces of footballers as they conduct post-defeat commercial obligations. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 223 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and with me today is Charlie Eccleshare. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Really good, thank you. Um, pumped, in fact, for the first Mesut Harland Dicks of 2023. Joining us, almost, almost, it almost feels like he's doing it as part of his initiation. New joiner initiation. It's the artist formerly known as Opta's Duncan Alexander. It's the Athletics Duncan Alexander. Welcome to Mesut Harland Dicks. Hello, thank you very much. Yeah, did you know a little stat for you? Mm, I uh, remember you're those. just the um, <laughs> just the third cliches guest whose Mesut Holland Dix wasn't their first appearance on the pod. Michael Cox, Rory Smith, and now Duncan Alexander. Um, we've done it the wrong way around, really, haven't we? But um, you're here now. You're a compelling football thinker, and that's why mm. we've got you here. In podcast terms, you get the club. I think. I I hope so. Yeah, you know, it's uh. There's a lot of information that's gone in and I hope I pass it, you know, correctly. Hmm. Your selections are as diverse and thought-provoking as I hoped, but to get us mentally warmed up, it's time for the adjudication panel. Listener Sam, as they so often are, has a burning question. A couple of times in recent weeks, I've seen penalties that have been put down the middle. The keeper has dived and the penalty has gone in, followed by a commentator saying that the taker has sent the keeper the wrong way. Instinctively, that doesn't feel right to me if a penalty is put down the middle, but I'm open to a range of interpretations. Please help. Charlie, I feel like it's okay. I feel like there are three options, broadly speaking, for penalties. And if the goalkeeper goes one of the other two, then you've sent them the wrong way, right? Hmm. The problem is there are two wrong options when you go down the middle. Yeah. The wrong way kind of implies there's only one wrong way. Because you sent him a wrong way, one of two wrong ways... But the way I they've know. gone is the wrong one. Well, it's a wrong one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah. if you got lost somewhere and you just got completely lost and you said, I went the wrong way, that's not a specific route that someone had gone, oh, you went down this, you know, the, True. the path of They're, doom. True, but then you're, you're not going to have a goal who's just like wandering forward or something, looking really disorientated. There, there are fewer options. I, I sense a certain worry in Sam's tone, Duncan, that 
that we're opening this umbrella of possibilities up open too far. I mean, could you could you send the goalkeeper the wrong height? Is that well, possible? Well, I was going to say, if the keeper jumped up really high and you put it on the ground, he's gone the wrong way, but in a kind of anti-gravity. <laughs> and that's a 2D situation. So it, it, Charlie's concerns are allayed mm. yeah. in that respect. Sent the goalkeeper the wrong height. Is, is it technically possible? Could you fake Charlie to go low or high and then do the opposite in any context of a penalty take? I think you can, but that, but that's normally when you're going high and into a corner. I've seen that done, but I think to just go like high straight down the middle, that's a harder fa- thing and a more unusual thing to fake. How would you fake going low, sort of a casual side foot and then blasting it? That's the only I, way I think, I think you could do it. You'd have to, you know, when players take those really annoying one step run ups for a penalty, if you kind of did that, but you were lent really far forward, like mm. you were over the ball, I think <laughs> that would suggest you're going very, very low. Possibly He's leading really far forward. This is not going over the bar. Got it. Okay. I mean, what okay. was the one um, Pakatar for West Ham? He, that did not look to me like a pen where he was going to go particularly high because it was one of those very casual, sort of short. I think you associate going high with a longer run up instinctively. Yeah, yeah I guess um, so. Yeah, that would be because it requires be really good technique to get it hard enough and high enough with a short run up. Mm. Yeah, let, let's let's stick with the traditional two choices for now. But I think I think it is still technically sending the goalkeeper the wrong way um, on penalties. Now, every now and then, um, a club gets so embroiled in its own sense of injustice, Charlie, that they will request clarification from a governing body, be it the FA, the PGMOL, and and that generally seems to be quite a needy thing to do. <laughs> I mean, it's happened. Get over it. Uh, take, for example, a very good example, uh, and I and I understand the injustice. It's Wolves asking mm-hmm. for for an explanation about why their goal didn't count against Liverpool, despite it all being now abundantly clear why why it wasn't allowed because the just it was just an unfortunate technological situation. But they've asked for an explanation, which seems pathetic to me because what are you going to do with that information apart from go, huh, well, yeah, thanks. So it, it is pathetic, isn't it? Well, that's, yeah, I, I thought you were going down the Wolves route. I feel like they've also directly gone to Howard Webb, which feels like the sort of, when that's when you're really angry, right? We're going, we're going straight to the top. Yeah, but this is my whole thing with like, we just want referees to come and explain their decisions. All they're going to say is, yeah, I gave it as I saw it. And it's like, yeah, and you were wrong. It's kind of like this bloodlust we have. And I can see why Wolves are upset, but they're not going to get an explanation that's satisfactory to them. No. It, maybe it's more for the fans, Duncan, the travelling fans, because the um, the Wolves Supporters Trust got involved in this and, and they they more understandably stuck their oar in saying, you know, people have paid to go and watch this game. They want clarification on, on what happened unfold in front of their confused eyes. Does that make more sense then? I mean... Technically, and it's something they can talk about, you know, in the pub ahead of the replay. But it, it's so technical <laughs> and vague, the language about it, isn't it? It's just like, you know, the conspiracy theories are clearly like if you were going to pull off that conspiracy, why would you do it in the FA Cup for starters? Mm. And B, it just is so outlandish. I mean, you know, it's one of those things that will be, I'm sure, raised the next time Wolves play at Anfield. But it's um, it's water under the bridge, really. Yeah, so th- this, this to me was the slam dunk of the genre. They've asked slightly pathetically for an explanation. They'll probably get one and it'll be probably be quite thorough and everyone will go about their business eventually. This, however, does not meet the threshold for acceptable uh, requests for explanation. This is Bristol City requesting clarification on their penalty drought. Bristol City have asked for clarification as to why they've had so few penalties awarded in the last three years. It's been... 430 days since they were awarded a penalty in any competition. They've been given just one in their last 1,100 days. It's quite remarkable. Bristol City have contacted Kevin Friends, the PGMOL manager of Championship Referees, to ask him to investigate whether this is more than just a statistical anomaly. Bristol City fans have created their own website, bristolcitypenalty.co.uk, with a clock running to catalogue the time passing since their last penalty. So, (laughs) Duncan, um, plenty of things to take issue with here. Mm. First, and actually least, measuring this in days is offensive. That's an act of desperation, isn't it? It's (laughs) it's a thousand days. It's about three years. Um... (laughs) I mean, lots of teams go that amount of time. I mean, Liverpool, if there's the big conspiracy going on, Liverpool haven't had a penalty in the Premier League yet this season. So, you know, what's going on there if it's, mm. uh, if it's a big mystery? But, um, yeah, I mean, what's next? A, a Newcastle can ask why they've not won the league since the 1920s. <laughs> I, my second question for this, Charlie, is at what point do you start to worry that there is something 
heinous going on about why you haven't had penalties yet. What, what's the cutoff point? Is it about a thousand days then? That's it. It's a thousand. We need to ask. Is it? I think it's. I think it's when you appoint Nigel Pearson as your manager. Right. I mean, that that to me, I'd forgotten that little detail. Then when they showed here, I was like, okay, I can see. Like he would fully believe that that is there is a genuine conspiracy against him. Yeah, I don't know what's a remote because yeah, any days sounds like quite a lot. Yeah, you know, once you hit a year, yeah, you might be saying, you do it in mm, hours. A, Why not do something. it in hours? Yeah, yeah. Um, Seconds. <laughs> Throughout this podcast, they haven't been awarded. A penalty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Not yeah. Does, does down to, why should downtime count? Why should are they counting close season here? Why would you? Insane. But as with the Wolves example, Duncan. I mean, I mean, Wolves are going to get a probably a quite detailed explanation from the FA, maybe involving screenshots and 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 diagrams in explaining where cameras are and things like that. In this case, what are PGMOL going to say to Bristol City? I feel like this is going to be like the sort of condescending reply an eight-year-old gets when they apply for a Premier League managerial job and just be like, oh, yeah. thanks for writing in. Really yeah. glad that you're interested in the intricacies of, of penalties and their regularity, but I'm afraid there's nothing we can do to help you. Yeah, good luck. Keep trying. I reckon you can really get one uh, in your next few games. All the best, Kevin, brackets, your close brackets friend. And it enclosed a, a, a postcard with all the referees' signatures on it, but printed, not original. And then they're supposed to be happy with that. Bristol City, I fear for you. And your state of mind. Um, it's now time for Mesut Harland Dicks with the Athletics, Duncan Alexander. Duncan, tell us about your first fascination of football, please. Uh, okay, yeah, the first one. This is a bit a bit niche, but um, it's played quite a big role in my um, you know my thoughts of football and how I view the game over over many years. It's um, the Football Picture Story Monthly Comics, which I think started in the sort of late eighties, and I think they ran through to the early two thousands. But I never saw any in Derek Smith's no. post millennium. Um, it was quite hard to find them generally because they were they were sort of A five shaped, so they yeah. always slipped behind stuff. You often saw them in like dentist waiting rooms and stuff, but. <laughs> But my contention is that um, there's only like four plot types in them and they pretty much do tell the story of, of all modern football. If you look at most stories in modern football, you can, you know, pick one of these plot points and, and they sort of fit into that. So they generally were promising youngster eventually comes good after hardship, varied hardship, but it could be anything. Um, the counter to that, um, and these were probably my favourites, were bitter and or evil veteran foiled in some way yep um i think my favorite of that genre was there was one based at the littlewoods cup final which i do think as time passes is the best sponsor of, <laughs> of the league cup which is it's aged better wholesome. but basically yeah it's wholesome yeah but um yeah essentially the plot was a physio who uh the club physio in fact who had been hard done by in his career he'd got an early injury and the club hadn't really helped him out i mean they, they give him a job as a physio so i don't <laughs> yeah i was angry he concocted a scheme whereby he was in the crowd at the old Wembley with a mirror. And every time the striker of his club, I'm not sure like why they weren't, why aren't you in the dugout, mate? You're the physio, but he was mm. in the stand. And he managed to angle the mirror, rare sunny day in Brent. And um, he basically put off his players by you know showing a light in their eyes every time they were through. Oh, this up. is like a laser pen kind of um, mm. forerunner. Analog laser pen, yeah. Um, <laughs> eventually, he was foiled, um, foiled and everything was fine. Yeah. Did um, they foil him? I think someone just went, is that physio in the crowd? <laughs> the exposition, you know, it has to, it has to, they had to get it done within a few pages. So I suppose these story arcs have to be fairly... Swift. What else were there? Uh, the third one was like unforeseen disaster befalls team or player. So, you know, that could be a natural disaster. It could be there was a couple of hijack stories, you know, very topical this week with Forrest getting a plane uh, and, you know, various, various kind of disasters that, that you know, a, an agent, an evil agent, that sort of thing. And then the fourth one, which I think probably ticked, this was the most common one, which was a maverick player outwits some usually continental hatchet man and wins round stern manager who doesn't believe in his sort of you know lackadaisical talents so um i mean that one definitely has has sort of modern uh application i feel broadly speaking with these kind of like aesop's fables but for football it's about the pitfalls that can can yeah happen to humanity but in a football context 
Essentially, I, I did dig out uh, an interview with the guy that, that wrote them. I think he was worked for DC Comics and he, oh, he right. got sort of moved from, I don't know, Superman or Batman or something onto these. And he was a big football fan. And he, you know, he obviously loved doing them. And he did say a few uh, contentious things. He said, we used to slip in, uh, we used to combine stuff and make it, you know, this would have passed over fans' heads, but we had teams called Liverton and Everpool. And I was thinking, <laughs> mate, I, don't worry, I got that. <laughs> I worked it out. I cracked the code. But Um, on that point, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast, Charlie, about how difficult it is to approximate football in a fictional way. Surely by employing employing sort of like a 50-50 strategy to team names and places is about as good as it could be. Liverton is a good way of doing it. Or is it too telegraphed? Yeah, or I mean, quite pro-evo names and that sort of thing. Yeah, you shouldn't corrupt it. It should be a cut and shut situation as far as I'm concerned. I've always had an issue with foot, like... Either I always think either go the whole way or don't. I always find it quite annoying when it's sort of when you have to have those sort of halfway houses. But I can see where they're coming from because you can't have you know it is fiction ultimately, but I quite like it to be the it's the real world, but just fictional things are happening within it. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, and I mean these days intellectual property you're not going to be able to use proper team names, are you? But Duncan, in the landscape of things you would have to explain to a kid today in football. How high does this rank in terms of things they just wouldn't be able to get their heads around as something that people are used to enjoy? Well, I actually bought a load of them off of uh, eBay about five years ago and they arrived and, you know, I, I showed them to my son and he showed absolutely no interest at yeah. all. It was like, yeah. I was like, it's football. And he was like, is it? Doesn't look like <laughs> it. I mean, obviously the exposition of the story is often the crowd. It's, you know, as per Roy the Rovers, where the crowd basically, by talking to each other, tell you what's going on. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, They shout mm-hmm. something absolutely absurd and very helpful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's an extremely high line against our fast striker. What's <laughs> going to happen here? Which I think that wouldn't work now, because, you know, if you're a game, you're probably looking at your phone or, you know, it's, that's changed a lot. So I, I don't think we... I mean, there, I have experienced in real life some some fans who do talk in that way and it's very entertaining to hear yeah. them do it. You know, Just in case just, they might get included in... Yeah. Uh, yeah, in, yeah, in exactly. the comic book at one point. Yeah, never know. Um, um, and then also just the kind of, you know, the, the very much the setting, you know, a lot... Because it's a comic, you get to see a lot of the backstory of, of players. So you see them going back to digs. You see them, you know, all in a bath together after the game. That sort of thing. We, things that that modern football audiences just wouldn't really, uh, really get. One thing about them, Charlie, and I don't think this is even nostalgia playing a part because I don't really remember this. I remember sort of consuming any of these, but they're the sort of Roy of the Rovers style artwork, which is genuinely sublime. Like the, the cover artwork for these are really, really good. They're not cartoonish. They're, they're about as faithful to the real thing, at least the 80s real thing as they could be. But one bugbear I've always had with the presentation of football in these and indeed Roy of the Rovers is that basically every goal is the same. It's... It's a, it's a very powerful strike from 16 mm. to 18 yards that seems to arrow into the top mm. right corner mm. from a right footer's perspective, sort of sort of slicing across it. And the goalkeeper's going, ah, oh, I can't get there. And there's someone in the crowd going, what a strike. Um, <laughs> maybe some goals, there is, there is an optimum type of goal for an A5 size comic book page. I mean, you can't go any longer distance than that. Otherwise, you just can't draw it. You can't. Yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to draw it. You, you could not, yeah. Yeah, you're, I think there is because you can also fit in a few. You need Roy or whoever's scoring the goal to be quite close up, so that's important. And then I'm just thinking one here: there are, you can fit in a couple of defenders who are sort of who are really deep, like almost getting in the goalkeeper's way. But again, I guess you want you want to be able to see as as many people as possible to show their desperation in trying to keep the ball out. Duncan, if you if you could take one tiny step towards the modern day. Tell us about your second fascination of football, please. It's dogs that uh, influence football to the extent that everyone knows their name. So obviously the the big cheese here is <laughs> Pickles the Dog, who at Beulah Hill basically rediscovered the World Cup. Everyone knows that. But yeah. people, some people don't realise that, you know, became a film star and then died of asphyxiation the following year, which is, you know, a common yeah. a common fate. He got, got a couple of TV programmes and one film, I think. But um, so Someone writing to the RSPCA for explanation about what happened here. It apparently caught his, you know, it wasn't skullduggery. He caught his collar uh, on a oh. on a fence post or something. But, I mean, he's probably just, you know, cock a hoop at his burgeoning film career and got a bit excited. But Is he looking for the uh, Fairs Cup or something like that? <laughs> yeah, the uh, Super Sport Screen Cup, whatever it was called, yeah. But um, Bryn, uh, p- people might not remember Bryn. He was at Torquay on the final day. I think late 80s, they had to, to win to stay up. And they basically 
knew what they needed to do in the last 10 minutes because the game had been delayed because Bryn, the police dog, had come on the pitch and bitten a player. So, um, you know, I think the team that went down, I think it was Lincoln, they they demanded a replay. <laughs> uh, probably probably ran into the FA and asked for an explanation <laughs> of uh, police dog, uh, what happens. But, um, but I think my all-time favourite on this, and, I, and this is a dog I don't know whose name it is, but I, I love, it's the most casual pitch invasion you'll ever see. It comes at Selhurst Park in a game between Crystal Palace and Blackburn Rovers. And uh, Brian Moore on commentary here with the most relaxed relaying of the news <laughs> of a dog on a pitch I've ever heard. Again, we see them there, that little knot of players, and then they fan out once more. There's a dog on the pitch at the moment. To the point where the old chap was there to kick the ball off the line, and the referee's got to do something about that. <laughs> well, he's looking for a bit of affection, but the fans just want him away. <laughs> do you, like me, sometimes wonder why on earth people bring a fine looking dog like that to a ground like this? <laughs> Could have been a very interesting moment there because the dog, in fact, was inside the six-yard area as uh, Terry Geno comes for this one, doesn't get it. And whether from this angle we'll see the dog appear on the left of the picture, but the shot there, as there he is, <laughs> that could have been a very embarrassing moment indeed for everybody. <laughs> Duncan, this is honestly the best audio example of a dog invading a pitch you could possibly have chosen. The, the all-encompassing nature of this commentary is so good. Kicking off with the small detail of Brian Moore calling the dog old chap, <laughs> which is a really nice, nice entry because like there, there's no venom there. He's not annoyed in the same way that if you know a bloke could just run on to get I don't know Mark Bright's autograph or something like that. Yeah, it's just tremendous from start to finish. What Brian Moore saying the referee's got to do something about that, as if there'd been a spate of refs just going ushering dogs onto the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> a crackdown on dogs coming onto the pitch. Maybe there was at some point because yeah, it maybe. happens less. His sympathy is very much with the dog. He's he's almost like this is you know this is unfair on the dog. You know he says about a fine looking dog like that at a place like this. So he I think he feels <laughs> like this is the opposite of like with the the pitch invader. It's like this is oh, this is just this is unbecoming for him. He doesn't want to be on this this pitch and with a ball nearly hitting him in the face. But, well, it's quite a regal dog, isn't it? It's a, I think mm. it's a golden Labrador. It's not the sort of dog you'd expect to see just wandering around a penalty box. Normally they're sort of little terriers and or a police dog. A really rare breed to see on a football pitch. It must be the only golden retriever I've ever seen. Yeah, as you say, <laughs> they're, they're more sort of excitable little dogs. But the best thing about this commentary, it, it goes from relaying the news of the dog, sympathy for the dog, a, a, a sort of stern, slightly Barry Davis style kind of <laughs> something needs to be done about this because you know it's you know it's, it's affecting the highest level of the of the English game, and then finally seamlessly Duncan introducing the dog to the replay of mm. the incident and sort of including him in the run of play, mm. which I think is just sensational commentary. Well, this is an era where you didn't have many cameras at football games, so they've got basically got one sort of behind the goal but to the side of the goal, and it's. Ooh. Would hate that, wouldn't they? Yeah. Hello, is that the FA? Um, <laughs> we can't see our dog. Well, well, it's a type of wolf, I guess. But um, yeah, so the the camera's focused on the uh, on the penalty box melee, and then as it pulls to the left, Brian Moore hopes that we see the dog, and and indeed we do. It's just <laughs> just sit there in the six yard box uh, like Sergio Aguero and his pump. <laughs> this. This particular act of pitch invading dog Charlie feels too cerebral, too high end to be included in like sort of blooper DVDs, which are much more sort of slapstick situations of people <laughs> failing to control dog. But this one, this one is high class. I've never seen yeah. it before. It really is incredible. And then he sort of, I mean, what is, what is it? He's, you know, and that, that chap is looking for affection. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very funny sort of, <laughs> sort of psychoanalyzing this dog and his, yeah. his motivation. He just wants to be loved, the poor thing. Yeah. Uh, he looks kind of happy. Yeah, he's just sort of of bounding around. around on the he also he also described Soho's Park as a place like this which in, yeah. you know, compares to the dog it was uh, yeah. slight hints of Kevin Keegan there you, you talk about <laughs> a dog like that at a place like this you know, I've kept quiet it, it, it's very unbecoming seems to be his uh, it seems to be his implication mm. well, this was obviously pre-social media days so there wouldn't have been a you know a Selhurst retriever account set up within minutes obviously if we go back 10 years or so in Twitter terms you know the Anfield cat had its moment of glory etc but I feel these are they became they I didn't like those there's this there's a purity to this Selhurst part one that I've rarely seen in other clips on that point 
Charlie, there is a weird exemption for dogs when it comes to instant creation of parody accounts on Twitter that are only going to be abandoned 48 hours later because no one cares about it anymore. Dogs don't seem to get the parody accounts. Cats get them. Mm. Various sort of weirder animals that just happen to land on people's shoulders get them, but dogs don't seem to get them. Are they sort of considered par for the course? Like, that is the most likely animal that will invade the pitch. It, you know, even it's even beyond me to create a parody Twitter account for it. Maybe. Is there also more of a, generally speaking, more of a respect for dogs? I don't know. that. <laughs> I mean that coupled with as you say the the lack of novelty combined yeah it means it's sort of like nah that's you know that's beyond the pale just leave, just leave them alone what this scenario does lack duncan is the um, an extended scene of people trying to remove said dog from the pitch it, it mm. remains the star of the clip we don't actually get to see anyone sort of <laughs> Um, clumsily trying to remove it. Yeah, we'll never know. I mean, if there's any Crystal Palace fans that were there that can inform us what happened. Yeah, normally you do get to see a player, yeah, get the dog off the pitch or a combination of players. Jimmy Greaves famously did that. But um, I mean, I still want to know how the dog got in there, to be honest. I mean, you know, get to the game with the golden retriever and what's the steward or the, the guy at the turnstile saying? Like, are you going to keep a that dog? dog? I don't know. It didn't look like a Is guide that a dog. more useful mm. dog to have on the pitch? Because they'd be more aware. If anything, they're not going to get involved. I mean, Knows the, the sight of a guide dog next to a referee would <laughs> reads the game so well. Um, so we asked our listeners I mean, what they thought was the standard dog on pitch procedure. I think Brian might have nailed it with his five step approach. Uh, dog on pitch procedure, he says. One, ref stops game. Thank you. Two, ways from the crowd as the steward unsuccessfully chases dog. Number three, commentator makes gag to co-commentator. Bit of a terrier in your day, weren't you, Lee? Number four, burly goalkeeper removes dog in a surprisingly affectionate and delicate manner. Yeah, there's always one player, Duncan, who's who's highly skilled at handling dogs. I mean, I mean, I guess it's a, I guess it's if you transpose this to population, at least one in eleven people is going to be highly skilled and mm. up for handling a dog. So that kind of works. Maybe goalkeepers are more along those lines. More, I would, I would put it to you that goalkeepers are disproportionately more dog owning than any other position on the pitch. Yeah, that feels right. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons if you meet a dog that doesn't know you, you, you kind of put your hand out like that, and that is also how you'd save a low, low penalty or low shot, isn't it? So <laughs> Get it down does smartly, tally up. Yeah. Okay. Goalkeepers and dogs are different, so they yeah. sort of they find out of common ground, and they, they need the companionship, presumably. Exactly, because they're so lonely. Um, I mean, I think they'd be just on the just on the commentary point as well. I think they'd also be a sort of like he could do a job for them where they're playing the, the sort of like that that would be lee's retort i think yeah you can tap into the what a player he was by the way locker exactly yeah. it's there exactly. for you yeah definitely yeah. a bit more pace than you mind but wouldn't yeah wouldn't be unreasonable they're quite quick animals um optional number five says brian a mark noble slash samus coleman type character clapping to his team after the dog is gone to refocus <laughs> that really is that really is the perfect bookend to this someone said right fun's over but i Heads on, eh? This is great. Really is. I also think they are the type of characters who would feel confident handling the dog and want to sort of lead by example and do it in a kind of like, don't worry, lads, I've got this. Mm. You know, with, with, with respect, but also assertiveness as they remove the dog. Worryingly close to Danny Baker video levels of chat about dogs on pitch. So, Duncan, your third fascination of football, please. It's... The reaction to anything deemed showbating by fans and commentators generally when it any suits their kind of anti-modernist agenda. So th to be clear, this isn't showboating, which I quite enjoy. This right. is the, the kind of inconsistent reaction to it, which I think we've seen this season with Richarlison away at, at Forest when he did a couple of keepy-ups and then got clattered and, and the general consensus was, well, he had that coming because yeah. what on earth is he doing? Compare that to when he was at the World Cup. You know, did a one of Brazil's goals, he, he kind of headed it a few times and then and then played it in for an assist and everyone was like wow this is just perfect Brazil football it's like <laughs> so the, it's that disconnect and, it, and you can also see it historically as well in the sense that there'll be videos of Gaza or George Best doing something very showboaty and it's we don't have characters like this in our game anymore yet mm. if someone did that this weekend it's like this is disrespectful you know and I find I'm really interested in why how that changes over time and what is the what is the reason that happens I am fascinated with it I never even considered this inconsistency before I want to put a spanner in the works sort of Dave Walker style and say I want to go full literal on this on a technical level Charlie the World Cup piece of showboating by Richarlison so called showboating self-styled showboating <laughs> it, it felt like quite a functional thing and, and secondly quite an instinctive thing the ball was there and he sort of decided to do it and it wasn't for any other reason than to 
keep the ball out of the reach of the opponent. Whereas the example against Forest, it felt like genuine piss taking for better or worse. So I feel like I feel like technically there's there's a reason why they got different reactions. Maybe, but I do think there is a subjectivity to that. How many times um, can you bounce it on your head for it to start to become dubious? More than two, really. Yeah, and also it is where I think the ends often justify the means. If it then leads to something, you have to say, well, it may have looked showboaty, but there was a purpose. It's when you sort of go nowhere with it that it's the kind of like, ah, see, you, you're just wasting everyone's time and you're trying to take the piss. Okay, so if we if we take the, the usual kind of indignance about this sort of thing, Duncan, we know that this sort of mildly ridiculing elements of showboating, usually towards the end of games that a team is winning, and um, that's the usual kind of scenario for this. It, it triggers the sort of reaction that you're talking about, a kind of uh, a kind of this isn't for us kind of reaction. But we know what the high end of this sort of thing is. It's kind of overt acts of taking the piss out of the opposition. You can't beat me, and this game is so easy, I'm just going to muck around with the ball. Is that the highest end we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the absolute peak of this was in Ligue 1 a few years ago where Neymar had a pink mohawk and he did a rainbow flick over someone in the corner and the ref booked him, which <laughs> is arguable. I mean, even that tested my sort of pro showboating uh, stance. Really? So, well, you well, were against it. No, I thought it was... I know, I, I was fully for the rainbow flick, but I, I also thought it was quite funny that the referee then booked him. It's so, absolutely um, bizarre. It's not it bookable. doesn't feel like a bookable offence. Maybe PSG wrote into the French FA to find out what, <laughs> what was going on. I mean, of course, there is the example that we spoke about the other day, Charlie, of, of players kneeling down and heading it in, mm. um, which 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 feels too much, I would say, if I was of that inclination. Yeah, I mean, we got sent an example of it. I think it was, again, from Ligue 1. And I did, I lo- what I love most about it was he does it and just gets the perfectly proportionate shove from an opposition player just to kind of like you fucking prick yeah. like, you know it, he you, you you know you're getting that. Mm. that the guy has total carte blanche like you could never book an opposition defender for it, it doesn't hit him or anything just shoves him and yeah. kind of like you're such a prick for me. <laughs> like, but that, that, perfectly that's perfectly just clearly delivered. like un- that is ungentlemanly conduct okay to do i that. i saw one of those live actually wickham nathan tyson did it for wickham i can't remember who against but he Ooh. basically rounded the keeper it was quite a wet evening and he basically just slid like you would celebrating a goal but and then headed it in <laughs> like a diving header sliding yeah. header Sliding headed to an open goal. Now, the reaction, fun. John Gorman was the Wicker manager then, and he reacted as you'd expect. He's, uh, he apologised to the opposition. He wow. said that he was considering fining the player. It was really, you know, a crackdown on, on such hijinks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Um, so, OK, so we've established the high end of this sort of thing, the stuff that, you know, even the most liberal-minded of us would accept as a bookable offence, the kind of standard stuff that would irritate the proper football men. But... I asked our listeners, Duncan, what the lowest bar for this could potentially be, the most sort of least discernible acts of showboatery that could be described as such. Simon King says, either a controlled chest back to the goalkeeper or maybe when a player controls that flat driven ball that's used to switch play from one wing to another with one touch. I guess there's a tipping point from where it stops being showboatery in a in a controversial sense and that dying art of earning what I think is like a wolf whistle from the crowd. What's the classic thing to generate that? What gets a... Is that a wolf whistle? Or is it an owl? (laughs) It is a wolf whistle, isn't it? Yeah, it's a wolf whistle. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I think... Yeah, like a crossfield pass would definitely fit into that category that's controlled very... Yeah, really sort of dead completely. I think the chest back to the keeper, pre-back pass rule, yes, I'd say that show about Post back pass rule, it's like one of the few ways you can pass it back to a goalkeeper. I mean, there was that spate when the back pass rule first came in of, of players. I think Lee Dixon did it in pre-season. He flicked it up yeah. and then like shouldered it back, which is technically okay. But then they had to quickly say, "No, you can't do that. That is <laughs> that's wrong. You've undermined the rule." I mean, I think one thing that is showboating, but no one ever minds, and in fact gets praise is when a high ball goes in the touchline and one of the managers traps it. I was just going to say that could- that that's a prime wolf whistle thing. Yeah. A manager with a back flick or something still got it. Yes. Yes, that is prime wolf whistle. I mean, I I just can't think of something that would guarantee getting it on the pitch. I I, I don't know, maybe a Maradona turn? Because you don't see too many of them. But when executed, I feel like half the crowd might not have seen it for so long that they would instinctively Mm. go... Mm. But 
but yeah, maybe, I suppose it's inherent. In the I feel act. like I feel like whistling's given way to weighing in the modern era. Mm. I th- I f- it feels like fewer people can whistle effectively. <laughs> when when you were a kid, you knew at least three people who could do the putting their finger in their mouth, and that really sh- I can't do that. I don't it's, know if you no, guys can. don't get it. I don't no, understand how God, people no. even know that they can do it. Yeah. Like, where, what, at what point do you know you can do it? And then after that, you're like, oh, I now have a stab at being at least a number two at <laughs> League Two level. Um, <laughs> um, Tom writes in, Charlie says, the least showboaty showboating is absolutely that thing when a tricky winger is stationary, ball is stationary, they cock their leg above it and waggle their shin over it, indicating they might go this way or that. It uh, boils my Brexit. Yes. <laughs> that is really funny. Um a friend of mine has a thing about that. A guy we used to play with would do that at Power League because it's totally useless. Yeah. You do you, like Gary Cahill used to do that. Really? Uh, yeah, it's a very like I've got the ball coming out of defence. There's no one anywhere near me, and I'm sort of waggling my foot. It's like who are you tricking? What are you achieving with that? It's almost like a nervous tick. It's almost it's, like deliberation rather than showboats. It's like I don't actually know myself what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got loads of space because they know I'm not great on the ball, so I've. Sort of got to do something. Yeah. Very weird. I'm I'm going to be on determined wolf whistle showboating watch from now on to decide what is the kind of median for this sort of thing from now on. All right, Liverpool fans, we've got some news. The Athletics dedicated Liverpool podcast has been given a lick of paint and it's coming back bigger and better than ever in 2023. It's still twice a week, and still your go-to place for transfer news, analysis and opinion from the Athletics' esteemed football writers. But the first big change is me, Tony Evans, as your host. I'm the former football editor of the Times of London, and I've been on the Mersey beat for years. You'll never walk alone as part of Anfield folklore, and we want a new name that truly resonates with Liverpool, the fans, the history, the essence of the club. So that's why we went for Walk On. Join us twice a week through the winds and the rain as Jürgen Klopp's Reds aim to save their season and maybe even sign a bleeding midfielder in January. Simply search for Walk On on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Come on, have a listen. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Football Clichés. We are halfway through the Mesut Harlan dicks of the Athletics, Duncan Alexander. We've done his fascinations. It's time for his irritations. Duncan, to be honest, from all my dealings with you over the years, you don't strike me as a particularly irritable man. Mm. I have to say, it's hard to see a feather on your body be ruffled. 
but <laughs> maybe we're about to get close. What's your first irritation uh, of football? That's fair. I don't. I don't get easily ruffled, but this one has ruffled me recently, and it is um, the declining standard of parental assistant refereeing in youth football <laughs> slash overall refereeing. But you know, it's often linesman based. Mm. Um, just you know, it can be that vary from people that don't know the rules. I yeah. literally don't know what offside is to just flagging too often to imagining they have VAR behind them or the worst, which is actually being biased to the team in which their kid is playing, which I think is, you know, no, no kid needs that hand. That's mm. not going to help them in the long term. So, um, and it, it seems to be getting worse. Charlie, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about Sunday league, sort of senior Sunday league linesmaning, but th- this adds a layer of difficulty and mind games to it because there is that inherent allegiance, not just to a team, but to flesh and blood. And, I just, as a, as a kind of under 13 footballer, I felt like the choice of parents slash linesmen was so crucial to the game. If we got mm. like the, the kind of unofficial number three coach who was just a guy who helped out but didn't know the game, <laughs> I felt deflated. It was awful because you couldn't have a go at them either because they, you know, they were just volunteers. So there is mm. an aspect of this sort of undermines all of Duncan's argument, which is, you know, well, someone's got to do it. You know, otherwise we wouldn't have a game, would we? So there is that, yeah. but also incompetence can't be excused. And I know I don't like when people are too busy. That is really annoying. So like just, just don't get involved. I get it. You're probably bored, and I, I do understand being a, being an, an assistant referee. I'm sure is very very boring, but don't make yourself the story. Yeah. Well, a lot of them seem to think you can do it all within a 10 meter space from the halfway line as well like the <laughs> the through ball they don't they don't care about through balls they'll just <laughs> they'll make an angle judge uh on that on that so yeah again that's that's not good i mean i think i mean i do it i mean i i step up and, and run oh, the line man. but i take it i take it seriously I, i've got a can-do attitude a darren can-do attitude if you like but um <laughs> but i i do i do think you have <laughs> to and i've been accused by by players from both teams of, of missing stuff, but I don't think so. But I've actually... You know, I'm you're, doing... you're like the BBC. You know you're doing a good job when uh, you're getting attacked from both sides. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, getting called uh, a blind man by both teams. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. <laughs> but at least I know in myself that I'm doing a fair job. And, and, and it is quite galling when on the other side of the pitch, perhaps, is someone who's sort of stood kind of using the flag like Liam Gallagher would stand when he was singing, sort of the flag's just behind their, <laughs> their back. It's like that. Get it ready. Get it ready. Some amateur, like properly amateur linesmen, Charlie, don't appreciate the um, the need to move down the line. As, as Duncan says, sort of stationary linesmen. I mean, they, they don't, they haven't practised the art of leading with the flag as you run, mm. which is which is old school linesmaning, sort of showing that you're really going for it. That's the sort of thing you need to see. Um, yeah, let the flag do the work. Is what I would say, do you, Duncan. Do you ever performatively keep your flag down when when you know it's a contentious? Uh, yeah, everyone's it's a through ball. Everyone's going to be looking to you. That oh, the, the flag stayed down. Yeah, I mean, I've you know I've been watching some of the greats over the years, and yeah, I've, t- I've tried and pick up bits and pieces from <laughs> from everyone really. If I can achieve half of what Mike Malarkey did, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is fun, you know. Like, there's nothing better than than holding it up when you're you know a substitution is being made, oh, even if, that, even, even rolling subs. You know, why not? You get more opportunity. <laughs> that must be a thrill. A, a philosophical dilemma here. Not something I've never really got my head around either as a very occasional linesman or just watching linesmaning from afar. Duncan, is it worse to flag an offside that wasn't than to not flag an offside that was when you factor in the potential vilification you might receive? Based on actual experience, I would say it's much worse to flag something that wasn't offside than, than vice versa. I think... You know, everyone loves to see the game flow. Uh, <laughs> this, so, that, that argument does actually work at Sunday League level. Denying someone a goal as well, scoring is the best thing in the world. To be denied that is, is I think that is worse than being denied keeping one out. But if, if we think of it, examine the kind of technical details of either situation. Let's say you don't spot an offside or you don't think it was offside. The play goes on. Everyone else deems it to have been offside. A goal is scored. There's a more of a kind of gentle flow of opprobrium. And of course, a lot of people will stand up for you and say it's fine. The other way around is you're, you, you've instantly stopped play with your flag and then the, the ensuing whistle. That's going to invo- that's going to re- result in a kind of sudden torrent of abuse mm. at you. So it's always going to be the former, isn't it? If you had to choose. And also what you see at this level sometimes, and this really does spark fury, is the lines person will flag 
and the referee will will, will judge. No, I don't think so. And mm. then and then play on, and then then all hell breaks loose yes. because the the bond of trust between the officials is shattered. <laughs> the players, some players are like the linesman flag. Some are like, no, the referee was was right. So mm. yeah, chaos ensues. Incredible creativity, Charlie. Um, when it comes to angles of vision um, at Sunday League level, um, the linesman in theory is in the best place to spot this. The referee might overrule overrule him in a Sunday League kind of way, which is so frequent and then you'll get the shout of how do, how can you know how did you, how see, did you see it from there and then the fans who are essentially 45 degrees between them suddenly have the perfect vision it, the whole thing is underpinned by just sheer ignorance and willful <laughs> ignorance too the the life of a amateur linesman do you Duncan I have the this vision of you do you go in with your other assistant and the referee like at half time do you do you sort of walk as a three to present United front sometimes I would say like sometimes you, <laughs> sometimes what happens is as you're swapping so obviously you swap sides with the other linesman yeah. uh, and you have a little you, you know, usually don't know them maybe like they're from the other team ends. you just give them a little nod you're like alright <laughs> yeah yeah, you, you're doing this as well and, but then if the if their performance in the first half has been you know below standard you know sometimes I'll I'll just sort of you know not blank them but give them a, 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 a sterner look as, as possible oh I thought you were going to give them a Mourinho like chin up or something <laughs> <laughs> there was a game when one one linesman actually got replaced in the first half because he clearly didn't know the rules. Oh wow! We're making light, of course, of the uh, weekly abuse that volunteer officials face at youth football level. Uh, we're going to continue to do so, as I reference the um, ongoing, well-meaning but slightly futile respect campaign that, of course, has filtered down to youth level with those little sort of um, little bits of string that are supposed mm. to divide parents and, and suddenly stop them from shouting but um we asked our listeners about their examples of overactive parents on the touchline at youth football Werber Newcrite since says the level of parental enthusiasm is inversely proportional to the age of the children I coach an under 15s team where the parents are relatively sedate but on the next pitch there's usually an under 8s game where every attack is roared on like Shearer bearing down on goal at St James's Park um <laughs> I suppose I suppose it makes more sense because at that age Charlie parents are Parents are on the, the first step of the journey of living out their vicarious mm. dreams in their children. Mm. Whereas under 15s level, those illusions might well have been shattered and those kids are probably interested in something else and they're not, they're not really doing it uh, to reach the yeah. professional game. And they're just inexperienced, aren't they, at that age? You know, well, everybody they don't, they involved, don't... yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The parents don't really know how to behave. And you're right, everyone at that point is still thinking like, yeah, maybe my kid will be amazing at football. Mm. I suppose I suppose that's kind of a technical aspect to this, Duncan. Under eights football is, you know, it's kick and rush. There's lots of bunching. They're sort of chasing the ball. Maybe that lends itself to more kind of fevered, get stuck in kind of crowd control. Yeah, I think at that age, it tends to be, much, yeah, you are sort of basically invested in your, your own child because the standard of football is so, it's not even football a lot of the time. You're right, it's just chasing around. Whereas it, when it gets older, it does, you know, the, the standard gets better and it resembles actual football. And then I think you kind of realise then that your your own kid's performance depends on the performance of his teammates or her teammates. So so that I think that's where you do become a bit more invested in the team. But you know the the whole scene has gone has gone big time people there's people turning up with collapsible um seats you know little terrace two rows of seats and stuff now so it's um <laughs> hmm. that level of kind of parental support while while good is also slightly i don't, I don't remember getting that when i was a kid just got dropped off i want to see sort of quainter acts of um of sort of football fan opprobrium reach that kind of level charlie i want to see sort of um, parent kind of throw their registration card at coach saying, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not watching any of this shit anymore. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're not fit to wear the shirt. Would be a really good chant at an under eights game, Duncan. Yeah, sort of less sweary ones, but still with the same same sort of derision would be great at under eights. Yeah, and it's always nice. Well, not I say nice. It's always interesting <laughs> seeing... <laughs> a group of parents surrounding the manager post game and and asking why they're you know saying stuff like you know he's better as a number 10 things like that <laughs> when they're like nine it's like is he I'm not sure um so yeah i mean you do see elements of of you know adult real football creeping into it particularly with you know a lot of the kids but you know there'll be some with the socks low some with them pulled over their knees there'll be you know it is it's quite 
funny seeing the little things that that mm. sort of drip down to that level. Right, let's hear about your second irritation of football here, which to me, on the face of it, seems like a complete betrayal of everything that you stand for, professionally and otherwise. Well, yeah, in a way, yes, but in many other ways, no, because it's essentially the veneration of the... I mean, I've said Rothman's football yearbook, but other, other yearbooks slash resources are available. <laughs> but the key thing there is book in the digital age. So it's kind of like, the you know, the, the importance placed on these books that can't be updated once we have a you know connected computer system where this information is not only available <laughs> but updated and you know uh, accessible really quickly and i think there's a kind of weird kind of traditionalist thing about it where it's almost like oh no it's much but it's a sort i mean i generally read most books on a kindle um because i find it better it's easy to find stuff if you need to look stuff up again that sort of thing but you get people who are like no no, no i couldn't do that i just i've <laughs> got to have the feel of the paper and it's and it's this but Fair enough if it's you're reading a novel or something, but this is information about football. And if you need to get, I mean, you know, I'm someone that does access information about football quite a lot. And trust me, it's much easier searching something on a computer than it is looking up in a book. Also, it's just it's just goals and appearances, isn't it, Charlie? I mean, what's, what else are you going to get out of it? No, but I mean, on a serious note, I have no wish to defend the Rothmans in isolation but to have a collection of Rothmans feels like quite a virtuous thing to have happened in your life. Or is it... Or is it actually something quite dubious and sinister to have a collection of Rothmans, a complete one. Do they, st- do they still make them each year? Yes, it's, it's um, Sky bought the, bought it, so it's now called, the, I think it's the Sky Sports Football Yearbook, about, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. But what you tend to find, and I know someone that did this, is they'll go on eBay and they'll buy the entire collection of, of Rothmans. And then you, and yeah, I agree, it looks nice as a as a backdrop, but no one's actually opening those books. Are they? You get, put your <laughs> finger on top of them, there's, there's going to be at least two millimetres of, thick dust you can almost pinpoint um the moment that rothmans became completely obsolete as the primary source of information if you go into any newsroom you know sports desk in the uk if you look on their dusty bookcase the rothmans will run out at a certain date and i can assure you it's exactly the same year that the average pub sticker on the window says live premier league football here i can guarantee the correlation (laughs) is eerily good about 2012, 2013. Yeah, yeah. Right. or my, my dry cleaners, which has a like "Good luck England at the 2010 World Cup" poster <laughs> well, that nice. I just love as a piece of like historical art. I don't know, oh, it gets the me every time. of that one as well. Yeah, I know. That's the thing that it's it's like it's like Fabio Capello. It's like a cartoon illustration. There's Capello and all the rest of the lads, mm. <laughs> our brave boys. I've got to. Um... Duncan, I've got to take you to task on this a little bit more. You love 1980s football comics, but you draw the line at the grand old pointless Rothmans. Yeah, just on that last point, actually, while I think of it, Teletext, South Seafax stopped in 2013 as well. So that adds to the, there is a, mm. there's a great schism. I think maybe the, maybe the Sergio Aguero goal changed the <laughs> space time continuum of football and everything since then has been a whole new, whole new ball game, ironically, but mm. Yeah, I, I'm not. I should make it clear. I'm not against old information. Like if someone unearths assist information from the 1890s, spoiler, they won't. I would, I would greedily lap that up. But then that would be written down, obviously. But, um, but the fact is that we've moved beyond. You know, all the information that's in Rothmans. You know, the capacity of Gresty Road. Great cheers. Is, is you can get that and Google that in seconds. Uh, on 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 your assists point, I noted the other day. Um some information about Pelé's assist record throughout his career. No one's gone and looked back at those. Where are these numbers from? I mean, I know they're wrong. What I want to know is, how did they come to these figures? Who does this and how and why? Well, it's essentially impossible. It was hard enough to go back and get every assist back to the start of of the Premier League. When Opta did that, someone had to basically... People like this, that they ordered every old clubs ends of season video on on ebay and wow so for a while there was a huge box of just the most incredible vhs's from the 90s you know there's (laughs) a great one there's yeah like there's a great chelsea 92 93 one when like the highlight is we've got an exclusive interview with mal donaghy uh (laughs) and then the groundsman's review of the year it's like yeah things things have moved on but um but that was a really massive task to, to even do that so there's no way that we'll know pele's from the 50s and 60s and 70s it's, it's just impossible any other um sort of stats compiling um um which you feel are disproportionately um revered in the modern day well there is that thing of um 
sort of commentators' notes getting made into art, which, you know, I can see the appeal in some respects. But as someone who's made those sort of notes in the past, again, don't use a pen and a bit of paper. You know, get get an iPad or something. It's 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 the twenty twenties. Oh but um, control F. You can't you can't control F with with handwriting. I have <laughs> tried that on a book on a on a sort of distracted <laughs> moment, and it yeah, it doesn't work. But um, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I'm not. I don't want to be too too mean about those. I, can, I understand it can look quite nice, but yeah, again, mm. it does sort of. It is very much a look at the look at the fabled kind of medieval art of collecting of information for <laughs> games. It's like it, it's not. That's not how it is. Someone's not going to go visit the Bayou Tapestry anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, see it on Instagram, it's that. fine. You can just yeah. you can see the bits you want and filter out the bits you don't <laughs> need. But um, yeah. but Charlie, on the on the commentary notes point, do not underestimate this as a present for someone otherwise impossible to buy a present for in a football. If, if they even slightly like a football team, commentary notes in a frame. I mean, it's nice to get. You're just never going to hang it on your wall. That's. I mean that's and that's a good benchmark for a Christmas present. Like it at the moment that you give it to me, but never going to use it. But it will never see the light mm. of day. Yeah, mm. that sounds about right. See also iconic goals depicted with little lines for the passes, dribbles, and finish. Also in a frame. It's not as good. It's just not as good. Why have you given this to me? Well, do you do you remember back that craze in the early 2010s where and you everyone got one of these for Christmas for those digital f- photo frames where you'd yep. put them up and they would mm. scroll through stuff. Someone needs to do a kind of video YouTube version of one of those where your favourite girls can just sit on your mantelpiece on a loop forever. <laughs> Brilliant. Which footballer do you think would be most likely to have that? Could sort of ha- could sort of imagine Shearer having a montage of his goals. Of his own goals? Yeah, his own, oh, yes, yeah, absolutely right, his yeah. own goals. Yeah, yeah, no question. Um, or, or Jamie Carragher with his own goals. Premier League ones. Yeah, uh, yeah um, yes, indeed. Right, time for your third... And final irritation of football, please, Duncan. Yeah, it's um, cheerful individual player sponsors having their photo taken with their player <laughs> after a bad defeat. It really, really, really annoys me. So, you know, you'll have gone to the game, your team will have lost 3 now, just dismal display. And then a few hours after the game, be it on the club website or even on Twitter sometimes, you'll see a picture of the player who's got man of the match and then his own sponsors will be there like grinning from ear to ear and the player just looks despondent and it's it shouldn't be allowed it should only be allowed after a good win or maybe a heroic draw <laughs> it should not be allowed after a defeat just trying to pinpoint the source of frustration here it, does it annoy you more that the player's been forced to do it or does it annoy you more as a fan that this has happened after your team has lost possibly the equally the same amount bit I think. of both I think got I, it right I feel sorry for the player because they they're just like I don't want to do this mm. you know I, I gave away we probably didn't give away a penalty if we got my other match but um but it's also, yeah, just like if you're a fan of this team, which presumably you are because you're forking out £580 plus VAT every year to sponsor <laughs> Mercurial Winger F, then surely why are you smiling so much after this defeat? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And I think we saw a bit of that in the World Cup with the Man of the Match Awards. Yes. Like they mm. were giving them, you know, the De Bruyne one remains brilliant. You know, he mm. looks so, it even came out and said, I don't know why I got this. I didn't deserve it. And I think it's the same, that had the same energy. Charlie, I can't, I can't picture... I can't think, I can't conceive of a worse player to give a man of the match award to at that moment and and expect them to play ball than Kevin De Bruyne. That's amazing. Yeah, that does feel like a wind-up. Mm. You're, you're really trying to needle him. I guess to an extent footballers, certainly at the top level, Duncan, are so well-versed in having to do this kind of robotic kind of commercial activity, win, lose or draw. But when you look at these photos, the, the, the kind of, you can just you can just see... It's so tangible. You can almost taste it. The the momentary summoning of patience for that split second of a photo. The sadness in their eyes. Not, yeah. well, even barely perceptible. That, that doing it's, of their duty commercially. It's the eyes. Like going close on the eyes. The mouth smiling. You know, mm. the cheekbones are doing what they've got to do. But you look at the eyes and it's, there is, yeah, like you say, sorrow. And, and they just look broken. And, and they are. It's, it should, it, honestly, it shouldn't be allowed. And it really, I think, I think it's even worse at, at sort of lower league level because... <laughs> The, without being offensive, you know, the, the lower down the pyramid you go, the the more esoteric the, the player sponsors become. <laughs> to Bob, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and they sometimes try and, you know, wangle in their own business into that. You know, they'll be sort of, they'll be holding a bag with the with the butchers on it. <laughs> you're just like, come on, we just lost. But it's a unique challenge as well, because you can't, even if you did want to show happiness, you can't show two, it's a really fine balance mm. of showing like, graciousness mm. for thank you for this award but also you know, paying you your wages slated. mate 
Exactly, but you might you don't look like delighted. Yeah. you know, then it's a sort of then it's the wrong attitude. Mm. There, there is a very specific from... type of smile to to do at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's slightly rueful, but yeah, well, it's kind of like you know, that. Yes, exactly. You lost. But I can one see why nil. from the sponsor from <laughs> one nil from the sponsors' point of view. I can see why there it does kind of reflect well on them that they're like even in this losing team. I've still you know I've still picked a bit of a winner. Now I think about it, I'm less annoyed about the player having to do it because I just think, well, you know, I mean they have to they have to sign balls and shirts and stuff, and I always think about that. That must be such a pain in the ass after a game when your mind is elsewhere. I'm actually now I think about it more annoyed by the grinning sponsor for, for whom Duncan maybe it's a once in a lifetime thing. Maybe their kids are with them or something like that. But it it does seem to be often like husband and wife as well sort of there for a small business so why yeah yeah i think i've got no problem if if there's a kid there particularly if it's like the mascot that's fine that's their big day that's all good but yeah i think there's a certain demographic husband and wife possibly business local business owners in their 50s and yeah you just if you if you're that happy after we've just lost four two to (laughs) to mansfield then i'm sorry this isn't the club for you a cynical, commercially driven end to your mess at Holland Dicks. Duncan, it's been an absolute pleasure um, to have you belatedly share your footballing loves and hates with us. Don't go away in, in a broader sense um, because uh, I've got a very special um, assignment for you in the coming Ooh. months um, and you're just the man to do it. So uh, yeah, That sounds exciting. Bid farewell, but not properly goodbye. Can I get a photo next to you where you're smiling? And uh... You might need to at the end of it, actually, <laughs> depending on how you fare if that's mm. not too much of a clue. Charlie, as always, well done to you. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back with the adjudication panel on Tuesday. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.